the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Father, again, we thank you for the intricacy of your word. We thank you that through this passage, we can see your providence and and protection of the Davidic line. Father, we thank you that we see your promises fulfilled, even your promise to David that there would be someone reigning on David's throne forever. Father, again, we thank you that through all this we see your perfection. We help, help us to see that, though. Many people miss it. And how you are not only providing for the Jewish people, but just the perfect plan that you have for them and for us. Father, help us to look at this passage, which many times people pass over, and to get a better grip, a better understanding of of how you're working, and how this even applies to today, and how it's going to apply in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. Well, today starts, uh, as it were, a, a new chapter in some respects as far as our teaching schedule, <laughs> preaching schedule. A number of a couple years ago, I decided that we were going to get into prophecy. At the time, I, I didn't realize how much that's needed. Um, all the things that are happening in this world, we need to understand what God says about the future. Uh, let me say this, that in July, we have, uh, we're going to have the privilege of having Jimmy DeYoung here. He's going to be here the second week of July. Not sure exactly what he's going to preach on. I've got to talk to him because I obviously don't want to preach on the same thing he's preaching on. Uh, he probably is going to touch on how do you, uh, keys for, uh, uh, interpreting scripture and then probably touch on the book of Daniel and possibly Ezekiel. Again, he's going to be here on, I think it's the 12th, 13th, and 14th. And don't miss, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's very good. I, how many of you know who Jimmy DeYoung is? How many of you were here uh, 20 years ago when he came last time? Okay. <clears throat> you were 12? <laughs> Again, in the next year, two years, we're going to be covering different parts of prophecy. We're going to be looking at um, different areas of it. I think I want to go into the feasts of Israel and see how Christ is seen there. Uh, touch on the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Actually, before that, go to some of Daniel, some of Ezekiel, uh, and a little bit of Zechariah. Uh, also ending with a whole study of the book of Revelation. And you're saying you're going to do that in two years? Probably not. Uh, but the point is, is we're just getting pieces. Now, I also want to say this. We're not going to just start and just keep going on. We, we'll have other many things along the way. I, I do want to teach on... Uh, three or four lessons on Romans 12. The reason is because uh, the teen group is actually memorizing Romans 12. It's an excellent chapter to memorize. I would hope that you might even be able to memorize it. But there's so much good stuff in there, plus it will help them of knowing why do I want to memorize Romans chapter 12. Uh, that will be inserted in, in between. But for today, we're going to be starting a series on, uh, and this is really the big question. This is the question that Matthew is answering It's, did Jesus have the right to be Israel's king? Did Jesus Christ have the right to be Israel's king and therefore Messiah? 
He's going to be answering these questions. Today's major question is, did he have the right to be Israel's king? Actually, chapter 2 of Matthew, it says, um, Herod asked the question, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, uh, where is he? Is he, the, in fact, the king of the Jews? Is he going to be the king of the Jews? I mean, is he now? Is he coming back? Is there such a thing as a literal kingdom coming? As you know, that well, maybe you don't know, but that is a huge issue in Christendom. Is Jesus Christ coming back to set up a literal, physical kingdom on this earth? I believe he is after the seven-year tribulation period. It's called the millennial reign. Again, Matthew is answering the question, does he even have the right to be considered Israel's king? And here we see that he is, he is uh, portrayed as, look at verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, though, that's, that's the key. That's what he's going to be talking about for the first 16 verses. He is indeed the son of David. Actually, when you get to verse 18, he's going to be, be shown to be not only the son of David, but the son of God, because we talk about the virgin birth. And we're only going to be in Matthew for a couple of weeks. But this really sets the whole stage for prophecy. Because if he doesn't have the right to be uh, the king of the Jews, then everything else falls apart. Okay, And so we, we have to establish that. Now again, in this passage, you're going to see some things. You're going to see the providence of God. It's interesting to me how you see it, how often you see it. There was one situation uh, back when the kings, when the divided kingdom, that Joash was the last remaining uh, line in the Davidic line. Okay, uh, his grandmother had killed all the other um, descendants of David, and he was the last one. Yet he survived, went on, and the line continued. I mean, it's just amazing how so many times there were close calls, and we're going to see some of this along the way at other times. But the point is this, we see the providence of God, that God controls the circumstances so that His will prevails in spite of the disobedience of men. You're going to see the providence of God over and over and over again as we study prophecy. The other thing we see is the promise of God, the promise of an eternal kingdom. And it's going to happen through the descendants of David. In 2 Samuel 7 Verse 16, it says, In your house, this is God promising David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. What does forever mean? <laughs> Long time. When David died, when Solomon died, when it was split and um, Jehoiakim uh, was the last of the line, does that mean, is, does that sound like forever to you? After a few hundred years and, and the, the line is no longer there, does that sound like forever? No. Forever means forever. Solomon never fulfilled this requirement. His descendants never fulfilled it. But God who is faithful is going to fulfill it through His Son. So you're going to see the providence of God, you're going to see the promise of God, and you're going to see the perfection of God in this. This is God's perfect plan. In the face of, again, certain supposed defeat, God's plans are fulfilled. You're going to find out there was even a curse against the line 
Like no person will sit on David's throne from your loins. And yet, how did that happen that Jesus Christ will be the one proclaimed to be king of the Jews? Now again, as we, as we come to genealogies, not many people just list or skip over them, don't they? You know, what are you going to read in devotions today? I think I'll read the genealogies. Now, you know, that doesn't usually happen. Um, genealogies are, are often looked at as what? The key word, boring. By the way, genealogies were critical to the Jew. It was through the genealogies that your claim to the land and your claim to an inheritance and even the claim to a taxation when, when it was uh, theocracy was done. See, everything had to do with the genealogies. Genealogies were very, 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 very important. But not only that, the claim to the priesthood was through the genealogies. If you were to go to Ezra chapter 2, there were some priests that were serving that could not be proved to be priests through the genealogies. They had to stop. You had to prove it. That's the point. You had to prove it. So again, we're not looking at this genealogy to be heady or for intellectual purposes or like it's not really that important, but let's face it, it's the first part of the, you know, Matthew. Let's look at it. This is very, very, very critical to prove that Jesus Christ has the right and is the King of the Jews. Well, let's look at the three parts that I've, I've broken down for you today. The first is the apparent contradictions of the two. Now, I'm going to say two genealogies because you see one in Matthew. You also see one in Luke. Now, again, Matthew's account goes from verse 1 to verse 16. And we're covered. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read it as we go, okay? Um, both Matthew and Luke chapter 3 are both equally inspired. Uh, Luke's is verses 23 to the end of the chapter. Now, I want you to notice uh, the one on Luke. Or excuse me, the one on Matthew. Matthew, again, seeks to prove one thing, that he is indeed the son of David. That's why he says in verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he starts out by saying the son of Abraham. And he goes all the way through the, the, David's line, verse 6, all the way to the point of his birth, verse 16. Okay, And again, you can read this at another time. But the idea is he traces it through David's line all the way to Joseph, all the way to the birth, all the way to Mary. It's interesting, this genealogy, Matthew 1, starts with Abraham, goes through David's line, to the, through Solomon, that, that's an important one as well, verse, second part of verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even name Bathsheba. Now why, why, does he, why is he so concerned about this? Because Matthew was primarily written, written to the Jews. Where did Judaism begin? With which character of the Old Testament? With whom? Abraham. That's where it started. So that's why he starts with Abraham. Because to the Jewish person, they knew they came from Adam. They just want to find out, is this guy from Abraham? That's the issue. So what we find in Matthew is this. Just as we, again, I wish we could, we could literally spend much time on this, but the idea is this, that Matthew proves the legal right of Jesus Christ to be the King of the Jews. The legal right. 
that he is indeed like Luke 2.4 says, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David. That's what Matthew uh, proclaims. That's what Matthew is going to prove. That he is indeed of the house and lineage of David. Now, look at how he breaks it up, how Matthew breaks this up. It's actually three sets of 14. From chapter 2 to the middle of verse, chapter 1 verse 2 to the middle of verse 6, there's 14 names, okay? By the way, it was common among Jews to leave out unimportant people when they talked about genealogies. The idea was this, they could literally skip a number of people. They could skip from the great-grandfather all the way up to the person who had the, the, and there might be three or four generations of people that are not even mentioned, but the idea is one begot the other, begot the other, begot the other, and to make it so that it was easier for others to remember, the children to remember, they would just group things. And here we see three sets of 14. There are actually more names than just the 14 in the first part and in the second and in the third. Example is in, in uh, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Or verse 5, let's say. Uh, Rahab, notice that. Um, Solomon, verse 5, begot Boaz by Rahab. Well, wait a second here. Rahab the harlot, Jericho, was 400 years, approximately 400 years before this point. How could he say that? Boaz didn't know Rahab. Well, because, again, um, through the loins, through the loins, through the begot, begot, begot. And Boaz, 400 years later, through her, why? Because that was, the, that was the line. That's all that Matthew cared about. He didn't care about all the insignificant people along the line. The point is, inspired text says, through the inspired writing of Matthew, there's a connection even between Rahab and Boaz. Well, why is that important? Because through Boaz... Begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David. Chapter 1, verse 8, Joram begot Uzziah. Actually, in between that, there's Azai, Joash, and Amazai. They're all omitted. Why? Because, again, you're just trying to clump it together. Probably that was left out because the relationship of Ahab's wicked daughter, Athaliah. See, there was, there was a lot of names that didn't, it didn't matter. The point is, the point, did, can you, can you connect Abraham to the adopted father, Joseph? And in that sense, is Jesus Christ the true heir of the Davidic throne? If you want to see that, go to Hebrews chapter 7. Go to Hebrews 7. Just keep your hand in Matthew and Luke. Maybe use your toes to get to Hebrews 7. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Even Levi. Now this is talking about Abraham offering to Melchizedek, which happened years before Levi was born. Okay, now catch that. Great-grandfather offered. Levi's not even born, but this is what he says. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Uh, by the way, this is, the, this is one of the key passages that proves that you are a sinner, not just because you sin, but because you're, you're an Adam. 
sin is passed through the father. Next week when we see the, the, the virgin conception, that's huge. Sin is passed through the father. So Abraham offers an, an offering and his, what is it, grandson. I said great grandson. Grandson is said to offer the same. Why? Because he's in his loins. Why are my kids sinners? Because my great, 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 how many? Grandfather, Adam, sinned. And from that, sin passed. That's why they're sinners. Because they are a product of my, my, me and myself and Sola, but I'm the problem. Okay, it's the man who passes on, called federal head. Well, that's getting a little bit more than I need. But the point is this. It is important to understand only in this sense. That as he begot Huso, begot, 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 there's the lineage is being passed down, okay, and is passed through the man. But notice, look at verse 16. Oh, and Jacob begot Joseph, okay, that's normal, that's a normal birth, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. No begot. Why? Because the Bible is clear that Joseph was not the father of Jesus, God was. So let's go to uh, Luke chapter 3. And again, we're just looking at the supposed contradictions of the two genealogies. Supposed contradictions. You might want to write that in your outline. Now, whereas Matthew is trying to emphasize the son of David from Abraham to Joseph, proving the legal right of Jesus Christ to, to to the throne... Luke's perspective and and Luke's purpose is to prove that that, uh, Jesus Christ was not the Son of God or the Son of David, but the Son of Man. In other words, He's human. Why? Because Jesus Christ had to be human if He was going to die for humans. Right? Does that make sense? Jesus Christ had to be fully human to die for us. He couldn't be an alien. He couldn't be just the Son of God. He had to be the Son of Man as well. Verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, was as was supposed the son of Joseph. Again, not begotten. Supposed the son of Joseph. And then he just keeps going down through the, the, uh, verse 24, the son of, the son of, the son of. Let's go to verse uh, 31. The son of Mila, the son of Menon, the son of Mathila. (laughs) These are hard names. The son of Nathan. (laughs) That's easy. The son of David. Okay, now wait, let's make sure we understand this. He takes it from Jesus, goes through David, but through David's son Nathan. Remember, Matthew went through who's of, which, which son of David? Solomon. Here it's Nathan. The son of David. Verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. All the way, verse 38, to the, the son of Adam. Okay, Adam. Prove that he was indeed a descendant of Adam. He is indeed human. Whereas, um, whereas Matthew moves forward to birth, Luke moves backwards from birth. Again, Luke begins with Jesus and outlines the genealogy, I believe, of Mary's family background. David's son, Nathan, which is, by the way, the third born to Bathsheba. And again, all the way back to 
Adam all the way back to God and the fact that God created Adam. Notice that. So again, Luke was Mary's genealogy. The idea that Jesus has the blood of David in his vein because he was a, a descendant of David, but just not through the, the Solomon's line. But he, he did have the bloodline. The Gentiles would have been uh, uh, needing to know that. Because Jesus had no human father, he couldn't be a descendant of David except through his mother. Still, the legal right to rule always came through the father's side, and this was true even in Christ's case, because he was legally Joseph's eldest son. Thus, we have two necessary genealogies. Luke shows that through Mary, that Jesus was literally a blood descendant of David, and Matthew proves that through his adopted father Joseph, Jesus was legally in the royal line. In every possible way, he had the right to rule. Okay, that's, that is the point of both of those genealogies. Because you might look at them and say, well, they're, they're different. Why are they different? Because one is Mary's genealogy. By the way, remember, sin was passed through whom? Father. The supposed son of Joseph. Christ was perfect in birth, perfect in life, perfect as a sacrifice. Luke, Mary's genealogy. Matthew, Joseph's genealogy. Joseph, son of Abraham, connected to Abraham, to the Jew. Mary's Adam. He had human blood going through his veins. He could be our sacrifice. That's the supposed or apparent contradiction. There is no contradiction, just taken from two different lines. But thankfully, both of them going, now this is real critical, going through David's line. See, both of them ended... Both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Hugely important. Well, let's look at a second major point, the questionable characters of four outcasts. <laughs> okay, so we've, we've, we've solved the problem of his genealogy as far as just the line. But, but now we have some problem people here. The typical Hebrew genealogy always excluded women, from what I understand. They didn't want women there especially in the lineage of a king. There was no reason. Because again, the right to rule was through the father. I'm not saying women are unimportant. I'm saying from their perspective, why have a bunch of women just, you know, gobbling the whole thing up? Let's, let's get to the point. And yet here, he has women. Not only women, but women of very, of, of questionable background. I mean, these were outcasts. So we have the questionable character of four outcasts. First one, Tamar. Uh, verse 3. Verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. All of a sudden, we, in this genealogy, within three verses, we have this woman popping up. Which again, to a, when a Jew was, was reading this, they'd be, wait, 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 why did she, why do you mention that? Why do you mention her? You remember who Tamar was? You can find her in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite, i.e. Gentile, non-Jew. Daughter-in-law to Judah, one of the twelve. The full story can be found again, Genesis 38. Tamar married Ur. Ur was one of the, the, the sons of Judah. God struck him dead. Now think about this. God struck him dead. You know what was one of the most shameful things for a woman in the Old Testament to the Old Testament Jew? Barrenness. God struck him dead. 
What did she do? Then she married his brother, Onan. And again, God struck him dead. <laughs> it's not funny, but can you think about this? I mean, married, not, all right, married again, struck dead. Frustrated at being childless and unwilling to wait for the third son. See, there was a third son that Judah actually offered. Tamar concocted an evil plan of becoming pregnant. She dressed up as a prostitute, put a veil over her face, waited by the road until Judah, her father-in-law, came by. She had twins from that unholy union. They had sex. And and Perez, the one that's found in this text, Judah begot Perez, was the oldest, being again, now catch this, in the Messianic line. He was in the Messianic line. She is in the Messianic line. This is a sordid story of immorality, deception, and incest. Nothing much else is said of her in the Old Testament. No happy ending, only an illustration of utter sinfulness of humanity. And yet, that is part of the king's genealogy. That is just unbelievable to me. Let's look at another one. Rahab, verse 5. Solomon Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now again, many years from Rahab to David. But just to crunch it. But but why? This is the thing. Why would God include, well, one immoral woman and now another one? Rahab was also a Canaanite, which was, i.e., an enemy of the of God's people. She was not only a prostitute, she was a professional prostitute. I mean, five times in Scripture, it doesn't just refer... I think she's referred to 12 times. Five of those times, Rahab the harlot. She was idolatrous. She was a Gentile who lived in that wicked city of Jericho. And you say, well, how wicked was the city? can't be that wicked. Jericho literally put live babies in jars and built them into the city walls as a foundation sacrifice. That's how wicked we're talking. Her trade was not probably even considered, in fact, it was just part of a trade. Very immoral, very ungodly, very anti-true God. Extreme paganism, extreme sexual perversion. And yet, what did she do? She welcomed the spies in. She protected the spies. She knew that what they were saying is correct. They let them, she let them out, didn't narc on them, <laughs> and became part of the Hall of Faith. Why? Because she feared God. And therefore, God saved her physical life. God not only saved her physical life, God saved her spiritual life. Hebrews 11.31, By faith, the harlot Rahab... Now notice, even the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, he didn't just say Rahab. The uh, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. And she ends up in the in the genealogy of the king. So now we have two wicked women. Now, the first one, Tamar, she had no happy ending that we under, we know of. And yet Rahab ends up in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith. Well, let's look at a third. Found again in verse 5. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Third woman. Why do we have all these women? Now, who is Ruth? Who is Ruth? A Moabite, 
a Gentile. By the way, Moabites came from Lot's incestuous union with his daughter, Genesis 19. That's where he, they came from. Got, got him drunk, had a child, and actually, and then that's where Moab came. So they were steeped in paganism. We could do a lot more. They were like God's enemies, God's people's enemy. The entire Moabite race was a product of incest. They were, their very existence, now catch this, was repugnant to the Jew. Where they go back. It was Moab's king Balak who tried to curse Israel through the false prophet Balaam. And according to Deuteronomy 23, uh, it says this, A Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, i.e. Jewish, even to the tenth generation. In, in other words, they were cursed. You just keep them out. They're repugnant. That's even what God says. And yet it says, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Part of the king's line. As a Moabite, Ruth's offspring were forbidden again to even... Her offspring couldn't even go to the assembly. I, I just find that so... So we have three. Three women. Except this one's not a prostitute. She's just the enemy. She, she was from the, the group of people that was considered the enemy. By the way, Ruth wasn't the enemy. Ruth was favored by God. Ruth is part. But all I'm saying is her people. And then finally, verse 6... Um, second part, David the king begot Solomon. Again, Solomon the king, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. What can we say of Bathsheba? The wife of a Hittite, Uriah, an adulterer. Again, her son died because of the adultery, the first son. And again, Solomon born. She had, I think, four, four uh, kids after the first one died. And yet God forgave and allowed her also to be part of the, of the uh, genealogy. It's interesting that she not only had Solomon, but Nathan. She had both sides of the, the, the strain, both uh, Joseph's and Mary's lineage. Highly favored adulterer. <laughs> well, let's look at one other thing. And I'm going to draw a conclusion on all of this at the end. Not, I think there's some things we can definitely learn from this, whether in your outline. I'm not too good at hiding things. You just read it, you know. Fall asleep if you want because you got no. No. Number three, the troubling dilemma of a curse. Not only do we have the two genealogies, not only do we have women appearing and that not of good repute, but also we have a troubling dilemma of a curse. Uh, the curse is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. Josiah begot Jeconiah. Jeconiah. Uh, if you go to 2 Kings, you, actually, let's see here. We're not actually going to be back to Matthew, I don't believe. But anyway, 2 Kings, we can see the curse. Well, actually, 2 Kings and then also to Jeremiah. 2 Kings 24, it says Jehoiakim. By the way, his name is appears in like three different ways. It's it's Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, and Koinah. Koinah, C-O-N-I-A-H. He's referred to different 
ways, but you know it's the same guy because it's the same part of where he should be as far as the king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Natusha, the daughter of Anathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Well, by the way, Jeroboam and on through, a lot of these kings did evil, okay? That's not what distinguished him. But the kingdom was coming to a close. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, uh, verse 10, at that time. Let's see how much I really want to read. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as the servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, his officers, went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And by the way, that's the end of the Davidic uh, rule in Jerusalem. Uh, Zedekiah comes in, but that's his uncle. The actual line is done right there. number of reasons, one of which he just gave up. Wicked, ungodly. But if you go over to Jeremiah chapter 22, we see a curse that is thrown on his line, his lineage. Jeremiah chapter 22. Verse, well, it's 24 to 30. We can, we can only have time to look at. Um, and again, uh, verse 24 says, Koina, the son of Jehoiakim, not Chin. But if you go down to verse 30, look, look at what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, talking about this king, talking about this one, the end of the Davidic line in Jerusalem, of the, of the kings at that point. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. By the way, he was going to have children, but a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David. That's what he means by childless. This guy is not going to have anybody sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. He's gone. He's out into Babylon. Remember, Babylon... Uh, Babylonians came into Jerusalem three times, took different prisoners, one of which was like David and his three friends. But this time when he took this prisoner, he said, there will be other kings maybe in Jerusalem, but it won't be from this guy's line. This, this is done. There will be no king sitting on his throne. I said I wasn't going to go back to Matthew, but think about Matthew 1. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, like I said, there's three different names for him. But Jeconiah and his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon, and after they, verse 12, were brought to Babylon, Je- Jeconiah begot, and then he goes, begot, 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 to verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. God said, nobody that is his son is going to sit on David's throne from this point on. Nobody. Now, that's a troubling thought, isn't it? But again, how is God's promise fulfilled? Through the what? How is it filled? Through what? It's through the bloodline of whom? Mary. Thankfully, Joseph wasn't the father of Christ. That's where the virgin conception comes in. Do you see how he's doing it? But wait, but he, but he had to have the legal right, and the legal right didn't come through Nathan, it came through Solomon. Oh, but Joseph, the supposed father, okay, he's 
he he can still place the um, the um, the right on his son of ruling. That's Joseph, but it's Mary. It's through her bloodline that it comes. Do you see how the perfection of God is? If you didn't have the virgin conception, you cannot have this. You cannot have a Messiah. You cannot have a king sitting on the David's throne without the virgin conception. So, let's recount this. The royal descendant, the legal right to the throne, came through Joseph's line. The right to rule always came from the father, because the father bestowed the right and privilege. It came through David, through Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 6. The curse did not apply to Christ because he was not begotten by the seed of Joseph. Again, Hebrews, the, the, through the loins. It wasn't through the loins of Joseph. If Christ had been born of Joseph's seed, he could never lay hold of the throne of David. Yet, because he was still the legal son of David, he inherited the right to rule. So that's the royal descendant. And then you go to the other side, the blood descendant, the bloodline came through Mary as a physical descendant of David through Nathan. Avoiding that curse against Jeconiah. Jesus had David's blood throwing through his veins, but this without the curse of either Mary or Joseph. I just think, praise God, what a perfect plan. See, when I said that we're going to be looking at the providence of God and the protection of God and the protection of God's plan, I mean, how perfect can you get? I mean, Again, a blood descendant of David through Mary, a legal descendant of David through Joseph. The Messiah is king legally through his father and naturally through Mary. Not only king, but he can become the Messiah. He can become the Savior. So what are some conclusions that we can draw? Number one, what a genealogy of Matthew gives us. It's almost as if he is nominating. I mean, it's like as you're looking at this, you're saying, why is he even mentioning these people? It's like he's nominating people for the hall of shame. Matthew, why even bring it up? Let's face it, he highlights two harlots, a Moabite, an adulteress, and someone that's cursed. And then saying, yeah, this is the line of your king. Do you, do you see how that would just grate at a Jew? It's like, I don't even want to read that thing. And then you add to that, men also found within this, Abraham, the liar. Jacob, the supplanter. David, the murderer. And you start saying, well, why? 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 And then all the evil kings of Judah, because there were a number of good kings, but there were some evil kings. And we, we don't have time to go through that. But And you say, why? Why is this genealogy of the king of kings, who is going to rule and reign, I believe, for a thousand years, why is it just filled with sinners? This is the point. Matthew is writing his gospel for an expressly Jewish audience. He must have realized that this was happening. They were going to grade against this. But he wrote it for this reason. Because it wasn't about the people. It was about God's grace. That is the whole point. It's, it's not that the people are on display. It's that God's grace is on display. Now, you think... As you look at that genealogy and everything I've just told you in the last 25 minutes, you think God's grace is marvelously on display? Do you see the perfection of God in the, in the lineage of David, in the lineage of Christ? 
See, God's grace is marvelously displayed through Matthew chapter 1. It strikes a blow, by the way, against Judaism, against legalism, against self-righteousness and human religion. Human religion would not have written this genealogy. Self-righteous religion would not have written this genealogy. But then again, let's go back to some of the characters. What do we really remember about Rahab? Not that she was a harlot. What do we remember? Faith. Forgiveness. She is part of the hall of fame, right? What do we remember about Ruth? Part, I mean, what was she? Great, great grandmother of David? Is that how I've, I've, uh, yeah. I mean, she is part of David's line. She is uh, the Moabite who became faithful to God's uh, part, uh, her, his plan. Uh, you see God's mercy and God's provision through Ruth. Even Bathsheba, again, what just cries out? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The God, it's not that God understands, it's that God is willing to forgive. Virtually every name in the list reveals some lesson about God's grace. Together they show clearly how important God's grace was from generation to generation as He nurtured and protected the lineage He had chosen to give birth to His Messiah to. Right? I mean, moment by moment, genealogy by genealogy, name upon name, it all shows God's grace. It all shows God's promise. It all shows God's uh, providence. He made a promise to David. And how is it going to be fulfilled with all these problems in the, in the mix? Like problems under the tree. So again, we see God's grace. Number two, I would say this, God's grace is not limited in scope. You know, let's take this even beyond the fact of the son of David, the one who's going to sit on, on the throne of David. Jesus Christ came to be king. He is king. But he also came to be savior, right? Let's not forget that. Jesus said of himself, or he was called the friend of sinners. He said in Matthew 9, I did not come to call the righteous. <laughs> I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And because of the perfection that you see that he had, he had no physical father, that he was both the son of David and the son of man, he could become our savior. It's an interesting thought that before Calvary, Jesus Christ referred to his followers as disciples and friends, but never brothers. But after the resurrection and after people put their faith in Christ, then he refers to them as also brothers. In fact, he even says, I go to my father and your father. Right? In other words, this is the point. Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus Christ came so that you could be forgiven. That if you repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and receive what he did on the cross, that he would not only forgive you, but he would, he would bring you into his family. That's why he says it. He's not ashamed to call you brethren. Now think about that. Sinners like Rahab, like Ruth, sinners like Abraham, sinners like David, God treats, treats us good. <laughs> Why? Because of the sacrifice of his son. I would ask you, have you ever trusted Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, as your Lord and Savior? 
Have you ever put your faith in Him and your sins have been forgiven? Because not only are your sins forgiven, but you have been placed into the family of God. He's not ashamed to call John Prince one of his brothers. He is not ashamed to say, John, you're part of my family because you have received me. Isn't that unbelievable? Because you know what? You don't know this, but John Prince knows how wicked I can be at times. In my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, and he's not ashamed to say you're one of mine. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've done even this last day or week or month, but don't we sin? Don't we back down sometimes? Don't we at times we don't run to God because we feel, well, you know, he, 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 you know, no, he understands. He takes sympathy on us. Thankfully, he will call us his, not only his friends, but he's, we are his children. Are you part of his family? Have you received the son? You know, God's sovereignty can overrule and transform even our greatest failures. Sometimes you look at a failure and you say, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought that. Do you truly believe that God's sovereignty can overrule and transform even in that worst of worst? I mean, what are we talking about when we say forgiveness? Therefore, He, Jesus, is also able to save us to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for us. He's making intercession for us at all times. Yes, we should be very careful not to want to sin. We should repent and say, Lord, I never want to do that again. But let's make sure that if you are one of His children, if you have received His Son and His Son's sacrifice on behalf of you, if if Christ is your substitute, remember, you're part of His family. And the genealogy shows that he has the right to be the Messiah. Now, you get to the end of the chapters of the Gospels and we see that he fulfilled being the Messiah by dying on the cross for our sins. But again, God's grace is not limited in scope. And then finally, I would say this, that Jesus Christ is the only Jew alive today who can prove his right to David's throne. He's the only one left. If it's not Christ, there is no coming king. Why? Because since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, no genealogies exist that can trace the ancestry of any Jew now living. You can prove they're a Jew, but you can't prove any any farther back than A.D. 70. The primary significance of that fact is is that for those Jews who still look for the Messiah, his lineage to David could never be established. Never. I think I left that out, uh, that uh, quote. Never. You can't do it. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the one to sit on David's throne. You can't prove it. Christ can. He's the only one that can. Doesn't that give you like shivers bag in your back? He is the only Jew living that can. Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David and therefore to the Messianic line. He's the only one. Oh, we're looking for our Savior. We're looking for our Messiah. The Jews are still looking. Jesus said, listen, I'm the only one that's, I'm the only one that can prove it. And he did. He proved it in the genealogy, Matthew 1, Luke 3. And he proved that he is the Messiah and the Savior 
and the king, not only for because he died for our sins, but he rose again, went to heaven. What did he say? I'm coming back. And we should be saying, even, co- even so come Lord Jesus. But he is the only one. You know what I love about Scripture? It's so solid. It's an airtight case. It's not that just Jesus came. It's not just like we, we sing some really neat songs at Christmas time. No, he is the king. And he is the king that is coming back for you if you're one of his. But even if you're not one of his, he is coming back. Amen? And he's not only coming back, he is coming back to judge. And he is coming back to rule. And all judgment, it says in John chapter 5, was given to him. He is the judge. He'll judge your sins. If you've received him as your Savior, remember this, that your sins have already been judged on the cross. That the wrath of God was averted from you to him. And you are forgiven. But if you never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, the wrath of God and God's judgment and Christ's judgment is still on you. And you can receive him today. You can cry out to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior, the only Savior, the only Messiah. And I receive you. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you. That's what we mean by lordship, by the way. I want to walk with you. I want to receive you. And I want to walk with you. Have you done that? I trust you have. Let's stand as we worship him. Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for the perfection and the providence of your plan. Thank you that through the Scriptures, we see that Jesus Christ is the only Jew living today that has the right to say that that he is going to be the, the ruler on David's throne. Father, remind us of these things even two or three years from now when we're studying about the tribulation and we're studying about the millennium kingdom and we're studying about the great white throne judgment. These were given to our Lord and He is going to rule and reign because He was given the right and even His genealogies prove it. Lord, thank You for the confidence that You give us through Your Word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, especially in these next few years as we study prophecy, to become more and more not only convinced but confident in in the perfections of your word. Help us to be students of Scripture. Help us never to say that prophecy doesn't matter because so much hangs on it. Lord, thank you for giving us wisdom. Thank you for giving us your mind. Thank you, Lord, for coming to this earth and dying for us and that we can be part of your family. In Christ's name, amen.